0: Wayne Gretzky, the best hockey player ever and one of the most dominant athletes of all time.
1: I worked on my craft from the time I was five years old to the time I retired at 39, and I knew what I had.
0: As a child prodigy, the Ontario native played on organized teams as early as five years old, but his talent came with its share of challenges. Explain why it got to a point early on yeah. just didn't like being Wayne Gretzky.
1: Yeah. like anything else, the negative people are always the loudest.
0: Noticeably smaller and weaker than his opponents, the Great One dominated with unmatched intuition and intelligence, but he credits much to his hard-working father there was an important game coming up sometimes
1: they would call your dad. I did always play a lot better when my dad was in the building but it was also a sign of these they don't think I'm playing well enough <laughs> right now I better get going.
0: With the staggering 60 NHL records under his belt as well as four Stanley Cup championships, Gretzky reflects on retirement. How do you replace the satisfaction now that you've got No, you don't. And how his future son-in-law and PGA star Dustin Johnson has rekindled the thrill of his playing days.
1: You're pulling so badly and wanting somebody to win so desperately that your stomach hurts when you're watching.
0: All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I guess the first question I'd have for you is, explain the origins of the line uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's pretty simple. You know, when I was a kid, um, you know, we grew up in a normal house um, like everyone else. My dad was a hardworking, blue-collar, bell telephone worker, and my mother was a stay-at-home mother that raised five children. So we didn't really have a whole lot in the sense of uh, finances, but what we had a whole lot was uh, uh, tremendous support from both parents uh, in whatever endeavors we wanted to to participate in, whether it be ice hockey, baseball, box lacrosse, et cetera. And my dad was a big believer that that sports for kids was uh, such a great avenue in the sense that um, it taught you so much about life, you know, how to work hard, how to uh, be unselfish, how to have teammates, how to understand what losing is, understanding winning under pressure, and all those things that you do in sports are going to be part of the real world one day and part of the real life. And more importantly, he always felt that if kids participated, it kept them away from free time, and he always felt that free time was uh, a, a reason for kids getting themselves into trouble and doing things they probably shouldn't be doing at 14, 15, 16. Um, so that was his big thing and with that um, he used to say to me all the time he, he didn't understand or know why uh, I was blessed with so much God-given talent but he, he really uh, drilled into me that uh, I was fortunate and I was lucky and uh, not to waste it and so uh, practice and, and uh, preparation were a huge part of what he sort of drilled into my brain from the time I was four, five, six years old. And um, the, the fortunate thing for me was I had a love and a passion. Um, I didn't practice uh, sort of to become um, the next Gordy Howe or Bobby Orr. I practiced and did the things I did because I loved it. And of course, like every other kid, you have this dream of playing in the NHL. But that dream is really tough to make into reality. So my preparation was always as good as I could make it. And always, I at least knew that each and every game that I went into, I was physically and mentally going to be at the best I could possibly be at.
0: I want to talk to you about your dad and growing Mm -hmm. up, coming up. But I also uh, wanted to touch on uh, first just your playing days and mm-hmm. you had some kind of it seemed like quirks uh, mm-hmm. w- when you were playing, one of which was uh, your pre-game routine and getting dressed the mm-hmm. same way for every game. Yeah. Explain that.
1: Well listen, um, my dad was a big believer that um, part of uh, being a good athlete was not just practice and not just physically preparing but to be mentally prepared whether it be the proper rest the day before or the day of uh, proper nutrition proper diet um, he really was a big believer that if you didn't have a proper meal the night before that physically you couldn't be at your best and so from a young age um, even at six when i was playing minor hockey um, uh, the day before and the day of um, he made sure that I ate properly and that didn't mean, you know, hot dog or french fries, that meant having either whether it was pasta or chicken or steak or potatoes. He was a big believer in that. Um, And so I never changed my routine, my entire career, my entire life. And with that comes, um, you know, you can say it's superstition, you can say it's routine, how you get dressed. And I got dressed the same way all the time. I always got dressed on the right side, my right sock, my right chin pad, my right elbow pad. My right skate just you know you can say it's superstition but it was partly routine also
0: you were talking about your diet and i mean stats speak for themselves you're mm-hmm. the most dominant athlete of any sport uh, ever and i would have thought when you know reading about you you had this you know really unique specific diet but then i i saw you would sometimes have four hot dogs before a game Mm -hmm. with uh, onions and mustard, or pie, or Diet Coke, or, Mm -hmm. um, it just wasn't the diet kind of you would expect for the...
1: The normal person? I mean, for somebody (laughs) with, you know, (laughs) your ability. Well, first of all, um, he was a big believer that uh, having steak and, and potato, a vegetable, a salad was the most important meal uh, whether it be the night before um, lunchtime of. He, he was a really big believer that um, you needed to get that, those carbohydrates and all that in your body a good 12 to 24 hours before you participated, whether I was playing box lacrosse or, or baseball or, or, or ice hockey. So, you know, when I played junior hockey, um, you know, we went to school. We went to school to 3.15, 3.30. Um, so you don't really get a whole lot of time to eat. You race home. Um, at that point in time, for a 7 o'clock or 7.30 game, I was eating steak and potato and all that at 4.30, 5 o'clock before I went to the arena. So when I turned pro uh, at 17, obviously the schedule and the lifestyle is completely different. Uh, there's no school. You skate in the morning. You have a light skate to prepare for that night, and generally guys eat somewhere between 12.30 and one thirty and then sort of rest or sleep or nap or whatever you do to get ready for the game. But I always found that by 4.30, 5 o'clock, I was starving because my routine was I used to eat at 4.35. Mm-hmm. So I would eat at 12, 12.30 like everyone else, but I always found that by 5 o'clock, I was hungry. So depending on what city we're in, if it was Chicago, there'd be pizza in the building, if it was Quebec City, there'd be hot dogs, and some cities, it was sandwiches. And in those days, we didn't have power bars, and we didn't have Gatorade or Powerade, you know, uh, the the energy drinks. And for me, I drank Diet Coke. I found that to be uh, the same sort of uh, stimulation as an energy drink. Um, And we had chocolate bars. We didn't have power bars. Uh, So if I had a Snickers or um, any kind of a chocolate bar, I found that that gave me energy. And sometimes it lasted throughout the game, and then other times I'd be hungry after the first period or the second period, and I'd have a half a sandwich or just something to give me that little bit of energy. And I never changed uh, from the time I was six. So I think my body, and, and physically and mentally, I just got so used to it, I had to have it.
0: I, I understand when you were playing in the NHL, you could tell if the stick was an eighth of an inch shorter, mm-hmm. or a quarter of an ounce off, or the Bauer skate blades were just minimally mm-hmm. different. How true is that?
1: Well, it's pretty true. It's like you know anything else becomes uh, second nature to you because that's your life. I mean, I was in skates as much as I was in probably walking shoes. Um, I was holding a hockey stick as much as I was wearing a toque. You just get so comfortable and so used to it, and you know it's no different than probably a baseball player. You know George Brett, the feel of his baseball bat whether it's a guy like Jack Nicklaus with his golf club, you know, if you do it every single day and you grow up doing it all the time, it just becomes second nature to you. And it's not something that I can sit here and say I'm an expert on, but I was an expert on my own equipment and what I felt comfortable with, whether it was my skates, my shin pads, my hockey stick, um, consequently, you, you, you get so used to it that if there's any kind of a minimal change, it's recognizable. And so kind of throws you off.
0: Although when you were five years old, you could have played against the 10-year-olds, ten ten year you were prevented from mm-hmm. doing so. So at six years old, you were playing against the 10-year-olds. Right. At 14 years old, you were playing against, I think, some 20-year-olds. Yeah. Um, what do you think allowed you to do that?
1: Oh, first of all, um, when I was five, when I tried out for the team, um, in those days, uh, minor hockey, I think it's called Adam now, it was called novice. That was the first team you played on, nine and ten-year-olds. So if I was going to make a team, a travel team, that was the team I had to make. Um, What did they say when a little five-year-old shows up mm -hmm. to practice? Well, I think think they were in shock uh, because I actually made the team. Um, and and I, I just thought, I just think they thought I was a smaller player because when they asked my dad for my birth certificate They, they kind of chuckled and said, you know, he can't play um, He's too young uh, Which is pretty unique and we were i I can remember like almost like it was yesterday My dad and I sitting there and said you can't play um, So there was some discussion uh, There was a little town about ten minutes outside of our town that I could have played on that team but I had I played on that team at five, I would have had to stay on that team throughout my minor hockey career. And at five and six and seven, it would have been OK. But you know, by the time I got older, it wouldn't have been the right fit for me because they were basically a, a level below my hometown. So basically went from double A. I would have been playing A hockey, which wouldn't have been good for me. So we chose um, to not play that year. I went back the next year, and I made the team. Um, and probably the success I had on that team, and I didn't play a lot. I scored one goal. It wasn't like I dominated and lit it up, but I scored one goal my first year. Uh, and um, I think that was the, the stepping stone for, for my life in the sense that at six, I was playing with 10 year olds and against 10 year olds um, who are much stronger and faster, bigger. Um, and so i had to use my hockey sense and my hockey knowledge and obviously as you grow in age it get becomes even better and more aware so when i was 14 and they said you know um you can play come and play on this junior team and i went and watched a practice and i was really unsure to be honest uh, i didn't know if i could sustain and play against the 19 18 19 20 year olds Uh, The coach actually uh, talked me into it and said, you could play at this level and I want you to be part of this. And so a lot like when I was six playing against a 10-year-old, I had to use my hockey knowledge and my hockey sense because, again, I wasn't as physically uh, strong. I wasn't as big or fast. Uh, A junior B coach that I had at that time was the guy who, who really changed my career in a sense that he was the guy that, told me to watch Bobby Clark play. And in, and in those days, the, the, the centermen were guys like Phil Esposito and John Bellavo and they were sort of this big, rugged, strong centerman that could consequently stand in the middle of the ice and stand in front of the goalie and not get pushed around. When you are my size, I, at Junior B, I think I was five foot seven and 115 pounds. I was a little guy. Um, and it was him that encouraged me to watch Bobby Clark because Bobby Clark wasn't known to be a big guy at the time playing in the NHL and winning MVPs and Stanley Cups and scoring titles. So that's when I changed my whole game and started playing out of the corner and playing behind the net, um, which was relatively new for anybody to defend against because nobody really ever gone behind the net. Everything used to be in front of the net. Um, I sort of Worked on that for two years as a junior and then I went and played major junior A in in Sault Ste. Marie and Continued on playing from sort of the corner behind the net and sort of perfected it by the time I got to Edmonton and WHA it was something that I was very comfortable with and yet for people defending me Nobody had really seen that a whole lot because everything used to transpire from the blue line to the front of the net so I was able to grow my game uh, use my hockey sense and practice what made me the player i became by starting doing it at the age of 14 and that was something that really helped me throughout my entire career and i (laughs) want
0: to back up momentarily you i think humbly mentioned when you were six you only scored one goal Mm -hmm. but Fail to mention fast-forward you know four years when you're playing against the same guys now as a ten-year-old playing against ten-year-olds you scored what something like three hundred and seventy-eight goals so it picked up uh, quickly Uh, tell about Wally Coliseum Mm -hmm. and why you used to pretend that was Maple Leafs Garden Mm
1: -hmm. well listen when you grew up in southern Ontario um, uh, it's really um, sort of ingrained into us that we we're all maple leaf fans and we watch hockey night in canada and every saturday night the maple leafs were on um and in those days they used to come on at eight o'clock which is relatively late um, and <clears throat> i was a, a huge Gordie howe fan and so if the detroit red wings were in town and they were playing um, my dad would let me watch the entire game, but if it was anybody else, I could only watch the first two periods and then have to go to bed. But, you know, as kids, we all dreamed of one day playing in Maple Leaf Gardens. It was like our sort of church. It was our, it was our everything if you were a hockey player. Um, my first game I ever went to in uh, 1968 or 69, I was uh, with my grandmother, and we sat in the very last row um, of Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, we got there at 7 o'clock and watched the warm-up. I watched the game. I watched the three stars, and I just kept thinking how great it was and how wonderful it was. And yet we sat in the very last row, Um, but I still loved every second of it and can remember like it was yesterday. And so that really, um, those kind of things really inspired me um, to one day dream big of wanting to play in the NHL. And so my whole... Um, uh, belief was that I had a love and and a passion, I I mean I truly enjoyed just skating by myself in the backyard for hours on hours and I never looked at it like I was practicing or I was becoming a better player I looked at it that that was my thrill and that was my um, uh, fun that I that I really truly could just skate out there by myself for hours on hours and for whatever reason, uh, nobody could understand it, but that was my that was my fun.
0: And your dad had a unique way of making the mm-hmm. hockey rink in the well, backyard. Right? like
1: everybody else, when I first started skating, you know, we went to local parks that were frozen ice outside, and my grandmother had a river that ran through the back of her uh, farm, and periodically I would skate on that when I was younger. And uh, my dad always says that a necessity. It wasn't because he wanted to make me an NHL player, but the fact that I could be out there for hours and hours and he would be freezing, that he could watch me for, skate for hours and hours from the kitchen and be warm inside. And that's how he originally decided to build a, um, a rink in the backyard. And he always built one of the best outdoor rinks around. He always had the ice four and a half, five inches thick. And you know he would begin by just watering it like everybody else, but he would take a sprinkler head at nights and he'd have the sprinkler head going for a couple hours. Um, and consequently always had the best ice around. Explain what you would do
0: when watching a game Mm -hmm. on television as a kid Mm -hmm. with drawing the Mm -hmm. rink on Mm -hmm. a piece of paper and how that benefited you.
1: Well, my dad was always a a really uh, strong thinker of the game. Um, I remember when I was four and five and six, he used to have me uh, do these stick handling drills and in and out of pylons and all that kind of stuff, but he had me doing it for hours on hours with tennis balls and his theory was that the tennis ball would bounce a little bit more than the puck, so if you could control a tennis ball, you're gonna be uh, so much more comfortable and be so much more at ease stick handling and carrying a puck. Uh, So for hours and hours I would skate and do drills with tennis balls um, at a young age. And then watching the games, he used to say to me, look, you know, what you should do is take out a big diagram, and build the rink, and you should watch the game. And by watching the game and not looking down, you're going to create some more um, peripheral vision, and you're going to grow your uh, sense of of where the puck is on the ice at all times. And so I would sit there every game, basically, when I was a youngster. follow the puck without looking down onto the sheet and as time went on, obviously I got better and better at it. Um, probably was drawn on the floor half the time at the beginning, but as time went on I sort of mastered it pretty well.
0: Hey, how would you best explain the role your dad played in your life? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it was everything. Um, my mom and dad were my—they're the reason that I made the NHL. Um, you know, fathers get most credit for athletes um, and deservingly so, they get a lot of the credit, but, you know, my mother was probably as as important or maybe even more important in the sense that she was the foundation of our family and of our household. Um, but my dad always said, um, you know, the good Lord has blessed you for whatever reason. You're getting a great opportunity to get out and see the world and create some, good mem- create some great memories and some great thrills in your lifetime and... I'd hate to see you sort of throw it away. And so he always encouraged me, he was always at practice, he was at every game. Um, you know, people say, was he, was he tough on you? But he wasn't tough on me, but you know, if I did things that he felt weren't um, gonna make me or benefit me as an athlete, he would sort of give me his, uh, the, the ins and outs of why he thought it wasn't proper. And I remember uh, the biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons I ever learned was the year I scored the 400 goals. Um, I was a kid that as soon as hockey season was over, I couldn't wait for baseball and box lacrosse. And basically I took my equipment and I threw it downstairs at the end of sort of uh, middle of April and didn't get it back up there until Labor Day. I never skated in the off season. never went to hockey schools. I didn't do any of that. Like, I guess they probably call it cross-training now, but back in those days, it was just like, All right, I'm going to do track now, I'm going to do baseball. Your and so, dream was being a Detroit Tigers yeah, player anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved baseball as much or more than I, I even enjoyed the game of hockey. So um, it was about, oh, three or four days after our season had ended, and one of the towns, which was a half hour from our town that we never really played against for whatever reason, they wanted to play an exhibition game. And so the coach came over and... He said, "You know, we'll, we'll play this game as long as Wayne's going to play. If Wayne doesn't play, you know, we're not going to do the game." And so my dad said, "Do you want to play?" And I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll play." Um, so we, we went down. It was like a Sunday afternoon, and got in the arena. And it wasn't a big arena, but it was jam packed. Um, probably a 1,000, 1,100 people that were jammed into this little old um, <laughs> minor hockey rink, um, and we got beat eight to one. It wasn't a very good game by any means, and uh, I remember we got in the car, and my dad said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, what are you gonna do? Last game, we lost 8-1, not a real big deal. And, uh, you know, in a nice way, my dad said to me, you know, you can't be like that. And I remember thinking, what do you mean? He said, you ruined your whole year. I said, how could I ruin my whole year? And he said, for whatever reason, the good Lord has chosen you. And each and every time you play, people want to see what the fuss and what everything is all about. And you can't afford not to be ready to play the best you can play each and every night. And so it was a lesson I learned because as I, obviously as I went on and started playing with the Oilers, we'd go to exhibition games in places like San Antonio and the, those days Miami and Dallas and uh, places they didn't have National Hockey League teams. And you know, we would fill those buildings and people would come in from everywhere to see us play. And so it was a great lesson for me because when I got into those games, I understood what people wanted to see. And so I prepared for each and every game, um, like it was the Stanley Cup final game, uh, whether it was an exhibition game in the end of September or game seven in the Stanley Cup playoffs in in May. Uh, I know in my heart that I physically and mentally did the best I could to play as good as I could play that night. Now, listen, I had a lot of bad games, but I know in my heart that I prepared for each and every game all the way back because of that lesson that my dad taught me when I was 10.
0: I think it was when you were with the Oilers, um, if there was an important game coming up, sometimes they would call your dad to try Mm -hmm. and get him to come to the game because they believed uh, you just played even a little better when your father was in attendance. (laughs) Um, It was
1: was always a catch-22 because if I, I, when I would come out for the morning skate, if I saw my dad, obviously I was thrilled he was there. And I did always play a lot better when my dad was in the building. But it was also a sign of, okay, uh, geez, they don't think I'm playing well enough <laughs> right now. <laughs> I better get going. So it was kind of a catch-22. It was a little bit of a kick in the butt also. Um, so in
0: 1991, later on, mm-hmm. your father suffers a near-fatal brain aneurysm. Um, how did you find out?
1: Um we were actually playing that night, and um, as my routine was, it was, you know, I, I ate lunch around 12, 12:15 and I generally lied down for an hour an hour and a half. sometimes I slept, sometimes I didn't and generally I got up around three o'clock and got dressed and went to the arena. Um, what had transpired in that moment was uh, around one o'clock I could uh, hear my wife running up the stairs and uh, you know, kind of flew open the door and you know for for people who who are with around the athletes they understand that there's sort of an hour and a half period there everybody's quiet and nobody wakes anybody up because they're getting ready Uh, but it was obviously pretty quick and loud and running through and she said to us your dad's in the hospital and so we got on a plane that day and I missed the game that night and we flew home Um, and you know it's an amazing story because you know, my dad worried about everything that transpired in his entire family, his friends, and part of you know any kind of uh, uh, injury like that is a lot to do with stress. And for my dad, um, he was I think seven days basically in a coma, and two or three years in, in a clinic, um, maybe even four years in a clinic, um, and then the last year uh, when they released him, he was at home and and. We, He used to have to have signs in the house for him to remember where the washroom was and where the kitchen was. Um, And it's an amazing story because if you saw my dad today, you wouldn't even know he had an injury. Um, And, you know, it's probably um, added 20, 25 years to his life because as the case for a lot of people in the 50s and early 60s, a lot of people smoked and it was part of our society. And, you know, he smoked uh, probably a pack of cigarettes a day. Um, Since his brain aneurysm, obviously, he hasn't had a cigarette and he hasn't smoked. And because of that, he's probably lived 20, 25 years longer. So in life, everything happens for a reason. Um, He's one of the most renowned Canadians in Canadian history because, you know, he's good to everybody. And people in Canada understand and realize that he's just got a big heart. And uh, for my dad, uh, his riches are his family and friends. And money's never been a big issue with my dad
0: Well it was amazing too I was talking to him uh, the other day and we, we talked for about an hour and probably a dozen times during the course of an hour <clears throat> people came to the house oh, uh, yeah. you know asking to see trophies or for autographs or stuff like that so the conversation was you know interrupted a bunch but I just thought it was amazing how accommodating he was but then too, You know, when speaking about what transpired there, you know, he's like, really? I mean, it it turned out great, because my therapist is now my son-in-law, so even something that was so tough, uh, he he put a positive spin on. um, But it was also interesting, he was saying, uh, when he first came out of the operation, uh, he was speaking Ukrainian, Uh, the first language he learned, didn't know how to tie his shoes or open a door, didn't recognize you or any of your siblings. What did that recovery process mm-hmm. entail for him?
1: Um, well, listen, I think it was a, a lot tougher for my mom. Obviously, <clears throat> it was tougher for my sister and my brothers because they were actually there in that area full time. Uh, for me, you know, I still had to get on and, and play and, and uh, fulfill my responsibility of being an NHL hockey player. So. I didn't have the day-to-day interactions or frustrations that they had to go through Um, but I was a good sort of uh, um, uh, person for them in a sense that I could see the changes in him because I could maybe wouldn't see him for a month or three months or four months and I could see the changes whereas when they were with him every day they didn't see the gradual changes But it was tough for my mom. It was really hard for my mom. Um, You know, uh, she—they got married when she was 18, and you know, my dad, like most people, that was her life. And so it was really difficult for my mom. But you know, um, once he got through that sort of four-year period, and then they started to wean him off of uh, the drugs that he had to take to prevent further, you know, uh, heart attacks or aneurysms. Uh, once he sort of started coming off of those that medication, you could see the energy level and his personality um, start to come back. Now, ironically, uh, um, with a brain aneurysm, um, things change in life, and for him, um, he changed in a sense that his pers- his his uh, beliefs in life and him as a person didn't change, but his passions and his uh, uh, Hobbies that he loved to do completely changed my dad. Oh completely. My dad never played golf Uh, When he came back he started picking up and playing a little bit of golf Uh, My dad never went anywhere without a camera in his hand Uh, We used to go to all-star games and you know those days They'd have a sort of an event Monday night and the game was Tuesday And Tuesday morning they do a team picture and Monday night everybody was a uh, black tie event and you know the players were really genuinely excited to see my dad with his camera because he was the one person that the next year he'd give them the pictures that he had taken the year before. He was very thorough about it, and it was a big passion of his. And he loved to fish. My dad was a huge fisherman, and uh, it was one of those things where you know when you're a kid, your dad knew you want to. F- your dad wants to fish with you. Um, but by the time I was about 13, I finally looked at my dad and I said, "I hate fishing. <laughs> I'm never, never going to do it again." Um, So when he came out of his coma, he never really picked up fishing again. He never picked up his camera again. Um, But the good things, like I said, you know, he he quit smoking, and um, I think he's more at ease. He doesn't worry so much um, about the wins and losses when I was playing or when I was coaching or part of uh, a team. Uh, he, He enjoys it when we win, but he doesn't stress like he used to stress over it that, you know, there was games where he would basically leave the arena and kind of go outside because he couldn't watch sometimes because it was so stressful for him.
0: Was it hard um, how much of the memory that was lost mm-hmm. considering um, all the Was it hard hockey? for us? Right. I mean, um, for you. Not
1: really because we were just thrilled that he was still around. Okay. Um, we were fortunate. We, we felt like uh, we were lucky that yep. you know he, he was still with us, although his... his uh, likes and, and passions and hobbies had changed. He really hadn't changed as a person, but his likes and dislikes had changed a little bit. He, he was telling me um, for a while when you were growing up, I think he was
0: making like $40 a week, and mm-hmm. occasionally he'd go to the market where his mother, your grandma, worked to ask for $10 to be able to afford mm-hmm. to buy you a 5 $6 stick and then have a few extra dollars to support the family. Right. Um, how much do you think your parents sacrificed to oh, support Yeah, hockey? everything.
1: Um, You know, uh, as you said, I was sort of uh, community-helped in the sense that both grandparents, my mom's side and my dad's side, helped out. Uh, My dad couldn't afford a new pair of skates for me. One of my grandparents inevitably helped out. Every now and then an uncle or cousin would help out. we didn't uh, go on family vacations because we just we really couldn't afford it our family vacations were going to hockey games and baseball games uh, but we didn't want for anything else we that was our life and we loved every minute of it um, but yeah you know we're, we're, we're no different than a thousand other stories of kids in north america or even europe that came over that made the nhl that didn't have uh, as much as other kids but what we had was, as I said earlier, we were rich in uh, support and love and uh, to me that meant more than financial dollars.
0: So a year earlier I think you're getting paid $5 an hour filling potholes right. with gravel and then all of a sudden you sign a multi-year contract where you get a $250,000 signing bonus plus another 100000 in the mm-hmm. first year. What does your dad say to you when you ask for some money from that no. to buy a car?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting because when I was a kid, you know, 12 and 13 and 14, um, and I understood that we didn't a whole, we didn't have a whole lot, uh, but that was okay. Uh, I didn't want for anything, but I can remember sort of 12, 13, 14 saying, should I get a summer job? And, and uh, my dad always said, no, you, you know, you got your whole life to work. Uh, when you're a kid, be a kid. Uh, but if you're gonna be a kid and, and train and be the best athlete you can be, um, that's your responsibility, and make sure you don't fake it. Uh, make sure you put in the time. And so I always thought that. And then, when I turned um, uh, 16, um, I remember he said, "Okay, you can work this summer." Um, I remember I got a job. I, I can't. Remember. I think I was making about four dollars an hour, but I really enjoyed it. I was throwing gravel onto uh, to holes on the on the roads and highways and. Somebody else would tar it, and I remember thinking, "Well, why can't I tar it? Why do I have to throw the gravel?" But uh, I worked for about eight weeks, and I remember when my last day. I remember my dad saying to me, "I guess you want to become a professional hockey player?" I said, "Yeah, I guess I do." Um, but it was a great learning experience for me. I'm glad I did it, and uh, you know, obviously, it encouraged me to become the best athlete I could become. Um, yeah, and like everyone else, I was in shock and. I didn't see that coming when Nelson Scalbania and WHA came along and offered me this uh, ransom of money, and, and uh, I didn't anticipate it. So when I did sign, um, I remember uh, I, I said, i got to buy a car, I I'd just gotten my license because my dad wouldn't let me get my driver's license till I was 17. Um, so I would just gotten it in about February or March of that year, and I remember saying to my dad, I need to buy a car. And, He said, "All right, here's five thousand dollars. Get whatever you can." (laughs) So I bought an old uh, used Trans Am, and I was the happiest kid in the world. And
0: you didn't ask you you didn't need the more money. You would. I
1: think I paid thirty six hundred dollars for it, but I was more happy than anybody. (laughs) Um,
0: I want to run through some notable moments Mm -hmm. um, and just get you to uh, recall uh, what what went on. How about nineteen eighty one Canada Cup lunch with the Canadian Prime Minister? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the Canada Cup in 81 was so unique because I was a, I was a baby, I was 19 years old and I was playing with guys like Larry Robinson and Dennis Potvin and uh, Guy Lafleur, my goodness, the list goes on and on, and here was this kid who had been watching them on TV two or three years earlier, watching them play in the NHL and watching them play for Canada, thinking, wow, what am I doing here? And, You know, it was a long tournament. In those days, um, um, it was a long event. We would start training camp early July, maybe July 4th or 5th, and do almost a four-week training camp, which was two hours of skating in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, and then um, bike ride after that. And we did that every day for probably 21, 22 days. Um, And then three or four pre-tournament games, and then an entire tournament, and then a final. So it was a long sort of um, summer for us to be prepared for hockey. Being only 19 years old, that's really what all I had in my life was hockey. but you know there's other players that had families and kids and unfortunately when we lost, uh, you know we'd been there a long time. A lot of the guys wanted to leave and get out of there. they wanted to go home, which is perfectly natural. Uh, so there's only two or three of us that ended up because we thought we were going to be the champions and have this trophy. We we're having to we have a luncheon with the prime minister. Trudeau of Canada, and there's only three or four of us that ended up staying in town. I remember thinking, gee, should I stay for this? And my dad said, you're not going anywhere. You're going to that lunch. I said, okay, Um, which I'm very happy that I went to. We ended up having a wonderful time. It was only three or four of us with the prime minister, and uh, we got some great one-on-one time with him.
0: How about getting thrown in jail with only a jock and a hockey sock on your head?
1: No, that's a little bit of a myth. What is it? Um, yeah. It wasn't the, the, it was the, in your the, autobiography. This, yeah, but the story gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> okay. Um, no, so when I was playing junior hockey. They well, um, pulled a prank on you, right? Yeah. Oh, right. And, uh, you know, we were in, like, overcoats and running shoes and shorts and t shirts, and we were put into this van and we were taken to a high school football game, and we were told we were going to be running across the field. Um, and, you know, it was all a threat. Nothing ever transpired of it. And then they had these police guys that they had on site show up and they were gonna arrest us. And we never really did get down to a police station, but trust me, they did enough to scare the crap out of me without having us to go anywhere.
0: When you were, uh, I think, 18 years old, you Mm -hmm. were asked to sign a 20 year contract. Right. 20 years. what, what did you start to do when you were getting ready to sign yeah. the well, contract? So, <clears> How did you yeah, kind of check it out? I,
1: I was really lucky. I, I, when I turned pro, I had a group of older players that really, obviously when we were at the arena, they treated me like a teammate. But away from the arena, they treated me like a son. Uh, I played with a guy named Jimmy Nielsen, and I was doing some high school classes, and I used to pick his daughter up uh, to take her to school, because we had some classes together. Uh, so one of my teammates and his child, we were we were in some same classes. So uh, I got very close to them, and I had a real big uh, belief in them and respect for them, not only as players, but as people. Um, when I was offered the contract, uh, you know, you got to remember, I came from, you know, a blue-collar family. And when you get offered that kind of money, you're sort of like... I, I was always the guy that said, you know what? Uh, security is a big thing, uh, although it's not going to change me. I'm going to work even that much harder. Um, but some of the older players that I was playing with thought that I was going to be underpaid um, and felt that, you know what, the, in three years you're probably going to be upset that you signed this deal. And, you know, I sat down and talked to my dad. Um, my dad was a really big advocate of it, also. He felt that um, this was a great win-win for not only the team but for me personally and so ultimately ended up signing it but before I, I was going to sign it uh, a couple of the players said to me you know put a different name on there don't don't sign your name and then afterwards you can work it all out and I just felt like you know what I'd sort of given my word that I wanted to do the deal and when I did the deal uh, and I'm glad I did it um, in those days things were different I knew that if I played well I knew that if I went to another level that you know we could have contract talks and that could change and ultimately that's what happened.
0: The 1987 Canada Cup, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you went off apparently on Mario Lemieux in practice one day. Uh, explain the situation and why you did it.
1: Well, it's not. that's not necessarily true. Um, players who know me and know that I've played with them, I, I don't think I've ever gone off on anybody. Um, except when Marty stole my Diet Cokes here and there. (laughs) Uh, You know, Mario was a young kid, and as I was in 1981, uh, you know, you're in awe, and I was in awe, and so probably was Mario in 87. Uh, We didn't play together uh, the first four or five games, and we were really bad. Uh, Not really bad, but we weren't what we were supposed to be. It was supposed to be this big buildup. It was gonna be Canada against Russia in the finals or at that time, the Soviet Union. Um, and <clears throat> we, we had stumbled along for two and a half, three weeks in this tournament. Uh, we had a big powwow, uh, myself and Mark Messier and Ray Bork with, at that time, I think the GMs were Bobby Clark and Sir Savard um, and uh, Cliff Fletcher. Uh, talked about what we can do to make it more comfortable and make things better. Um, And so, we were able to do that, and at the arena the next day, um, Mike had called us in and said, you know, I'm going to play you and Mario together. And I said, that's fine. And so, what had happened was the first game we played together, uh, him and I got a two-on-one. And I gave him a pass, and Mario's got such great hands, like Mike Bossy or Brett Hall. He never misses. Um, And he passed it back to me. Now, although I was a goal scorer and scored a lot of goals, uh, quite frankly, I would tell you that you know if Mario's got an opportunity to snap a puck from the slot. His shot is probably harder and better than mine, and consequently, I wanted him to be the shooter. So when we got back to the bench, I said, "Listen, Mario, you know if we ever get two-on-ones, you know, just believe me, you're you're going to be the shooter. You're going to score the goal because, quite frankly, you're a better goal scorer than I am." And so that was the conversation I really had with him, and. What made that such a big story was ultimately how we won the final game when we had a two-on-one and I gave him the pass. And I knew when I gave him the pass, I was never gonna get it back. (laughs) And uh, I remember saying to him when he scored the goal, I said, oh my gosh, that was one of the greatest goals I was ever part of.
0: And Coach Mike Keenan credits that as the tournament where Mario really became the player that he he ultimately. He
1: would have been the player he became. Obviously, like me, in 81, when you're around guys like Guy Lafleur and Robinson and guys like that, you become a better player, and you watch how they practice, and you watch how they became winners. And, you know, sometimes you got to see it firsthand to, in order to really comprehend it. Pure talent and ability just doesn't do that. you got to see, you got to gain this knowledge. And so I got it in 81, and uh, Mark Messier got big parts of it also and guys like that. And then Mario was uh, the, the uh, benefactor of that in 87 and became, uh, helped make him or helped become the player he became. But listen, Marlon Mew was still one of the greatest players who ever lived. I, I think he would have been fine had he not been there in 87. <laughs> um,
0: speaking of that knowledge, though, uh, walking past the Islanders' locker room mm-hmm. after the team beats you yep. to win the Stanley Cup finals, what did you take away from that?
1: Well, it was really difficult because, um, first and foremost, in, in, in that year, uh, we had had such a great playoff. And we were we were flying on all cylinders. I mean, we were a really good team. Um, what we lacked, though, was knowledge and experience. And in 84, I guess it was 83, um, uh, we played the very first game. We had home ice advantage. We played the first game in Edmonton. And... I don't know the exact number or the correct number, but I believe the shots were something like 53 to 18. Um, Billy Smith was sensational, stood on his head, and we lost two nothing. Um, and <clears throat> we weren't experienced enough or smart enough to rebound or regroup from that two nothing loss. Their experience and their patience uh, was really evident. Not only not so much in game one, but more so in game two, because in game two, um, we lost, I believe, six to three, if my memory is correct. And what made the game so unique was that Mike Bossie got food poisoning that day, and Mike Bossie didn't dress that night. And the three guys on that team, other than Billy Smith, that were so imperative to the group were obviously Mike Bossie, Brian Trotje, and Dennis Potvin. So by tra- taking uh, Brian, uh, Mike Bossie out of the lineup, we felt, okay, this is our opportunity um, to jump back into the series. What transpired in the game was something that uh, I, I can remember like yesterday. They just thoroughly dominated us. They played their uh, best game up until that point in the series. They threw a guy into the lineup who wasn't even addressed in game one. And a kid named, uh, I think his name was Anders Kalur. And he scored three goals that night. And we got beat 6-3. And before we knew it, we knew it. We were down two games to none, and Mike Bossy hadn't even played in both games. (laughs) Um, That set us on on our ear. Um, It taught us a lot, it showed us a lot, and so when we went to the island, obviously, we lost game three, and then, you know, game four, we still had, uh, obviously, belief in our group, because at that point in time, all the pressure was off of us. Um, And I remember losing game four, and in the island, the way the arena works, is that you gotta walk by their locker room from your locker room to get onto the bus. And I remember saying to Kevin Lowe, oh my God, this is gonna be the worst walk of my life. And uh, what what we saw and what we uh, witnessed was completely different than what we sort of had thought in our minds was gonna happen. And obviously there was jubilation in their locker room. Obviously there was excitement and they were they were a great franchise. And I think that was their fourth cup. But it really wasn't the players themselves that were overly celebrating. The players themselves were pretty uh, banged up and pretty quiet, to say the least, because that's where we learned the difference between winning and losing, that winning is hard and it's tough and it's physically and mentally demanding. And losing is relatively simpler and it's, quite frankly, easier. Um, And so it was a great lesson for our franchise. And, um, you know, from there, it becomes leadership and we had a really good coach in Glenn Sather um, when we got back to Edmonton and in our exit meetings he talked about what we had to change and uh, yet how proud he was of our team but we weren't going to be in a panic situation that we were going to learn from this and become a better team from it and I think everybody took that to heart and obviously his leadership was a big part of what mentally the players started focusing, focusing on right from the time we left the arena in, in June till when we got back in September.
0: When you scored five goals in a game, bringing your total to 50 goals in 39 games, what did you say to your dad when you called him mm-hmm. immediately after getting off the yeah. ice?
1: Well, in those days, things were different. You know, you never knew if, because if, all the games weren't on TV. You don't know if they, they got it on the satellite dish or if they were able to see it. Um, so immediately after the game, I wanted to call and, Obviously, I knew he probably heard. Even if he wasn't watching the game, he had friends obviously in Edmonton. They were probably calling him after the second period and updating him. um Yeah, and you know, I just said, "Hey, it was a big night. It was a good night." And no, I he gave say, a much more yeah, animated yeah, version like, of what I was talking was like, to. Him. Yeah, he was like, he was like "What you... took you so long?" <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, but I remember driving to the arena that night, and I'd had. You know, obviously it had been a great year for our team and obviously I was at a pretty good pace when I was driving the arena, 45 goals in 38 games. And Kevin Lowe and I used to drive the rink together all the time and I was very edgy and very nervous. And uh, I remember I said to Kevin, I said, oh my God, I said, I, I can't get this close and not get 50 goals in 50 games. Now I wasn't thinking 39, I wasn't thinking 40. I was thinking I gotta get 50 and 50. And I remember saying to Kevin, I got 12 games to get five goals. I I can't be the guy known, uh, because Rocket Richard and Bossy had done it, I can't be known as the guy that got almost there and then choked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was so nervous going to that game. And Philadelphia at the time was a really tough team to play against. They were really disciplined defensively. And there was a difference between the East and the West. The West was a little bit more wide open, and the Eastern teams were obviously a little more defensive-minded. And... Pete Peters was a very good goalie and Pat Quinn was a really good coach and it was always hard for me to play against Bobby Clark But I always got excited to play against them and it was just when I scored the first goal from the puck went off Boards from behind the net um, I remember I said to Paul Coffey, I said, okay I got, I got a good feeling about tonight things are gonna be lucky
0: and I don't know if you would expect this your dad uh, got choked up when he was telling me the story because Uh, He said, you told him you were calling before speaking to the press, and he said it just goes to show you how Wayne always put family first. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, listen, he was a big believer that um, the media and and the press were a big part of the game of hockey, sports in general. and so for him to say it was nice you called me before you talked to the media was probably a big deal for me because normally he'd say, get out there and talk to everybody. <laughs> yeah, All right.
0: Um, so after you won your first Stanley Cup, mm-hmm. I mean your fourth Stanley Cup in uh, five years, what's the shocking news your mm-hmm. dad ends up telling you yeah. that night?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, listen, um, obviously it was a huge year for us because uh, we'd come off September winning the Canada Cup, when that was so exciting. The hockey was um, paralleled to that of the '72 Summit Series, um, and you know there'll never be a replica of 1972, but as close as we could ever get to that sort of enthusiasm and style of play was that of '87. So it was an exciting year. We got off to a great start. It was fun. Uh, I got hurt, uh, it was just an accidental freak play, I hurt my knee and I missed six weeks. Uh, first time I really had missed a length amount of time in a season, um, but as it turned out, because I would played so much hockey from the 81 Canada Cup, the 84, the 87 Canada Cup, we'd gone to the Stanley Cup Final, uh, five out of six years, I'd played so much hockey and in those days we played 14 exhibition games. Um, So I'd played a ton of hockey and so it was probably the best thing that could happen to me um, Was that I got a little bit of a break and I ended up with about a five and a half six week break And when I came back back, I felt fresher and I felt stronger and I felt better Uh, Obviously, you know We were the best team that year and you basically won four straight in the final and we had a really strong solid group of guys um, fortunate enough to play with so many Hall of Famers and so many great unselfish players, and it was exciting. Um, and to win the fourth time, it never gets monotonous. Although we were saying, "Well, this is something we could get used to," and uh, it was obviously very exciting. And I remember, by the fourth time you win the Stanley Cup, everything sort of changes. And I don't mean this to be egotistical, but you win the first Stanley Cup, everybody sort of helter skelter, nobody really knows what going on or where do you go or who takes the cup Uh, by the fourth cup everything's sort of more mellow and much more organized and players are a little bit more subdued although obviously really excited Um, and so we had uh, I think we had like a big family friends team sort of get together dinner and it was at that point in time my dad sort of whispered in my ear that there had been talk that um, you know teams were maybe going to trade for me and I thought he's out of his mind, and I didn't believe that was realistic. Um, and so that was the end of it, and you know, as the night went on, we went home, and I got a phone call at home. In those days, people had phones in their houses. <laughs> I had a phone call from the first contract that was ever offered by Nelson Scalbania, and he asked me how I'd like to become a Vancouver Canuck and be part owner, and I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. So once he'd made that call, I knew there's some sort of traction Uh, to the story Um, and uh, I knew there was something behind it.
0: What do you remember from being in the office of the then King's owner Mm -hmm. when the Oilers owner calls and Mm -hmm. doesn't know
1: you're in the office? Well listen, I I knew by that point in time I was going to get traded and you know business is business and and even for me at that time I I didn't understand it completely Um, you know I felt that you know Obviously the biggest reason I got traded is that I wouldn't sign an extension uh, and, and it wasn't that I wouldn't sign It was more on the basis of look Let me play the year out and at the end of the year. We'll, whatever fair micro value is um, I don't want to go anywhere uh, Quite frankly um, And from his side of things he didn't want that to happen. He said basically if you don't sign, you know, I got to move you um, And I at that point in time sort of still in a little bit of disbelief and shock, but like a lot of things, business is business. And at this point in time in my life, I understand more completely why he did what he did. At that point in time, obviously I didn't understand it, partly because I was younger and quite frankly, didn't understand that side of the business. But in saying all that, uh, the biggest myth of all was the fact that you know my family and my wife wanted me to be traded to LA. That was so not true. Um, we narrowed it down to about four teams because the team wasn't gonna make a deal Uh, unless I would sign an extension obviously they weren't going to give up a lot and a lot of money if I wasn't going to sign and so as we talked about it um, we narrowed it down to I think there's three or four teams involved Um, and my wife had sort of suggested Detroit and she felt that that was the right place for me to go and that's the right place for me to play Um, It was my dad who stepped in and said, you know, there's only one Gordie Howe, the Red Wings are fine, that franchise is everything they're going to be, and they're going to be successful. Um, Wanting to try something unique and different and go to L.A., and at that point in time, you know, Bruce had been so good to me and so excited about getting me uh, that I felt like, all right, you know, this will be a great challenge. Now, let me tell you, the first exhibition game I played when I looked in the stands and there was about 9,000 people in the arena. Um, for a Saturday night exhibition game, I'm thinking, what have I done, and what have I got myself into? Um, because I'd come from arguably one of the greatest teams ever, and arguably one of the most exciting franchises that ever put together a team. Uh, a lot of Hall of Famers, and really exciting team, um, to a team that finished 20th out of 21 teams. That was a big drop. And... Um, So I knew we had a tremendous amount of work ahead of us, but I was thrilled with the opportunity and, quite frankly, I was scared to death.
0: But but when you were in the office that Mm. that day, you know, you're with the Kings owner, the Oilers owner calls not Mm. knowing you're there. Well, What did you hear, and at the time, how did that make you feel? No,
1: he basically said I was like every other player and he was going to trade me because I wasn't going to sign a contract with him. that sort of probably elevated my uh, level of okay. We got to move on here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get traded. At that point in time, I, like every athlete, you think that you're untouchable in a franchise, but he looked at me as one of 20 players, and I understood that. Now at that time, I didn't understand it at all. Were you, in
0: that, I mean, it seemed like you kind of went out of your way to uh, be overly nice with how you handled things in mm-hmm. that press conference where right. the trade was. Well, because uh, yeah,
1: because listen. Um, I was treated incredibly well, not only by the organization and not only by ownership and the coaches. I mean, they were hard on me. The coach has got to be hard on you. That was, that's what makes you a better athlete. There were some times I wasn't too happy about that, but that's what made me the player I became. But all in all, the memories and the friendships I had and and, and the people I met in Edmonton, the fans I've met, it it was hard. It was difficult for when they told me, okay, we're going to trade him. We, we basically, he's out of here, and that was difficult for me. It was, Glenn Saylor was the one guy though that tried to talk me out of it, and he was the one guy that said I can stop this and I can kill this. Um, basically stepped in and, and said all that, but by that point in time. I felt like that ship had sailed.
0: After you were traded, I think the owner suggested, the Oilers owner suggested publicly that your tears in the press conference were fake. Did did, did it bother you, like how it all ended? Yeah, yeah, it
1: crushed me, and probably I said some things about him or to him that crushed him, um, because emotions were really high. Uh, But, you know, he went through a hard, difficult time when he traded me, and he probably knew more than anybody how hard it was gonna be. So he's defending his self and his integrity. Now I look back at it, I understand it. I understand where he's coming from. At the time, um, I didn't have a whole lot of sympathy for it. But at this point in time in my life, um, you know, I understand the entire package. To what extent were you surprised
0: by how severe the public reaction? I wasn't was.
1: surprised because, you know, Edmontonians uh, treated me like a son. I always say that. You know, Mark Messi is an Edmonton boy and he's their son and I was from Toronto area and I was their adopted son. Um, I made so many friendships and I like to think we gave them a lot of great memories. Um, one of the things that is kind of funny now when I go to Edmonton periodically, people will say, you know, my grandparents told me, you were a pretty good player. <laughs> they used to watch you play, and I think, oh, my God, how old am I getting? <laughs> uh, used to be, you know, I saw you play, or my all kids right. saw you play. Now, it's my grandparents said you were pretty good. Uh, so I got treated so well there. Um, never had a problem or an issue. Nobody treated me any different than anyone else in that city. People would say to me all the time, how did you get around? Where did you go? I went everywhere. I, nobody ever bothered me. Sure, people wanted autographs or the odd picture, but nobody ever bugged me to a point where I'd say, I can't go there, there's too many people. I went to theaters, I went to movies, I, I went to junior hockey games and sat in the stands. People treated me just incredibly well, and that's that was the hardest part about leaving is I was treated so well.
0: And you received an amazing standing ovation the first time yeah. you came back to play the Oilers in Edmonton. What, you said, the hardest thing you ever had to do in hockey mm-hmm. was play the Oilers? Yeah.
1: Listen, the, the, the first game I went back was so difficult. Um, a, because first and foremost, the guys on the other team, we, I mean, we'd won championships together, we were best friends together, we, we saw families grow together, our parents were all best friends, whether it was Mr. and Mrs. Messi, or my mom and dad, or the Coffees. Um, you know, say there was a big believer in the families being together after games, Parents would ride on the team bus back to the hotel. It wasn't one of these, oh, just the players can be on the team bus. He really incorporated the family. And so that part was hard for me. Secondly, Edmonton's different than most cities and that's not a big, huge city. So 90% of the games, it was the same people sitting in the same seats. I could look across the ice and for four people sitting there, I knew saw those same four people almost 35 out of 40 games. Um, so they became like friends, not just fans, they became friends. Um, so going in there, and, and they treated me well, and I like to think I played hard for them, so it was a two-way street. So the, going in there, I knew it was going to be the hardest thing I ever did. And so the first game was relatively um, not easy, but it was it was nice because there was a lot of niceties that went with that first time back. After that, for me, it was the hardest place I ever played in. I hated it, I never liked it, never got over it. Uh, from the f- First game to the last game, the last shift I played there, I just was never very comfortable uh, at ever being an opponent playing in Edmonton.
0: Your uh, family mm-hmm. and uh, y- your wedding—how um, true is it that? I mean, something like ten thousand people were outside mm-hmm. the yeah. chapel in
1: which. Well, first you got of married. all, you got to understand—it's a huge hockey city. It's a huge sports city. So the people that we had at the wedding, the, the, the people who were gonna be there, obviously a lot of the Oiler players, some NHL guys, people like Gordie Howe and Vladislav Tretiak, people who are my friends that over the years. And Edmontonians love hockey and they wanna see them. And so part of the attraction was for people to see these different athletes and celebrities that might be at the wedding. Um, and then of course the wedding itself. So, you know, again, nobody bothered me nobody got in the way people were genuinely nice people were very appreciative and it was one of those um, it was a beautiful day for not only myself but for my uh, grandmothers who were both there and obviously my mom and dad and janet's mom it was uh it looked a like family. a royal wedding no it wasn't quite <laughs> but a I mean but, that's what it but wasn't. it was fun right we you know i'd done so many favors in town for different charity events and stuff like that so you know, people that I had done favors for in the years sort of stepped up and like the Edmonton Orchestra said we want to play in the church and a couple of my friends said we want to sing and the people who donated a couple uh, old cars to take the uh, uh, wedding party away where people i had done charity events for, so, for, for in town and donated their cars. So it became like a city event in that everybody was sort of involved because it is a small community and everybody helps each other. It turned out to be a wonderful day.
0: Although I, I don't think she remembers it, you and your now-wife Janet first met, I think, in 1981 at Dance mm-hmm. Fever. And then you guys uh, later had a chance to talk at a lakers celtics mm-hmm. game, during which you asked her, I think, to grab like, beers a- after the game. Is it true like that night you knew you were in love with her?
1: Well, I don't know if that night, but yeah, we, we got along very well the very first time. We sort of sat and actually chatted with each other and our, you know, mindset was very similar and our goals were the same in life in that you know family was number one importance and our careers were important but you know we both wanted to have kids and a family Um, so when you start off a night where you're both on the same page obviously it makes life that much more simple Um, but it was true we went to we we met in 81 i did this show called dance fever and obviously she's a tremendous dancer and she was really good at it and I was a horrible dancer and it's probably one of the most feared moments I had in my life is you know you had to walk out on stage and dance for like eight <laughs> seconds and it was she, she one time asked me what happens to my rhythm when I take my skates <laughs> off and I said I really don't know but... So how'd you do? <clears throat> I did awful But you know, and then you were to judge these kids who were dancing and of course I was going to give every one of them a 10, no matter what, because I don't know anything about dancing, so I did. I think i gave give everybody a 10, but um, that's when we first met. And then over the years, uh, I think we ran into each other a couple of times at different charity events, and then we went to the the, the Lakers-Celtic game. We were both big uh, basketball fans in the sense that we loved watching the Celtic-Lakers final like everyone else, and we just happened to be at the same game, she was with a friend, and I was with Alan Thicke, and we ended up going for a bite to eat after, and the rest is history.
0: What's this I hear that you proposed over the phone?
1: Yeah, you know, sort of Jackie Robinson. <laughs> I saw that in this movie. Um, we were in Edmonton together, and she was going to do this video for uh, workout video, and she was going to be gone for five or six weeks. Um, and it was just one of those things where... Um, When you're chatting on the phone, basically it was like, well, why don't we get married? And so we just said, yeah, why wait? And we did it over the phone, obviously. And when she came back to Edmonton, obviously we had a proper dinner and proper uh, event to to get ready. Uh, But it was interesting. Um, I had really not told anybody. And I told one of my teammates one night. And uh, one of the waiters, I guess, overheard it. it was the next morning, it was on the news, and I said, oh my God, how'd this get on the news? And you could call into the radio station for the biggest tip of the day or the biggest tip of the month, and this guy won the- I said, I hope you win tip of the year, <laughs> it's worth it. So anyway, that's kind of how it leaked out. We didn't plan on it leaking out till she got back, but it, it happened.
0: So uh, your daughter's uh, soon-to-be mm-hmm. husband's uh, PGA Tour star Dustin Johnson. What's it like having another mm-hmm. professional athlete in the family? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, we're really lucky. You know, uh, we're very proud of all of our kids and uh, proud in the sense that the greatest compliment you can have as a parent is when people say, you know, your kids are so polite and they're so nice and they're so thoughtful. And that's the best compliment you can have as a parent about your children. And for us, we're lucky. We have three older kids, uh, two younger ones who are still at home. Um, and obviously the two older kids, Ty and, and Paulina. Paulina's engaged with us, and as you said, and Ty's got a Wonderful girlfriend that's around a lot for the last couple of years. So we're lucky in that our kids who are branching out now are bringing people around us that are um, Very very nice and for Dustin obviously he's at a whole different level in his career right now Um, He's uh, been a wonderful father and he's been tremendous to have around our family and we like to think we've helped him a little bit Um, But we never thought or I never thought once I retired that I'd have the same sense or the same feeling uh, going into tournaments that you're pulling so badly and wanting somebody to win so desperately that your stomach hurts when you're watching, and it's probably the same feeling that my wife and my dad had when they watched me play hockey games when we were in the championship games. Really? That's yeah. That I mean, you feel the same oh, way yeah, watching well, him? Sometimes I have to turn away if he's got a putt, or sometimes you know I get nervous if he's got a shot. You know, but... That's because you want someone to do so well. Uh, That's because you're pulling for them so badly that you get this anxiety inside you that you want them to be so successful. Um, And listen, um, he's an elite athlete. He's an elite golfer, obviously. And he's got the ability to go to even another level, I believe, and good for him.
0: Much like anybody at points in their life, he went through some tough times in 2014, and he, he... um, has publicly said you were one of the key people in his life then, and has been very complimentary of um, your role in all of that. Um, what was important to you to mm-hmm. pass along during that period?
1: Um, listen, uh, in life, nobody's perfect. And, uh, you know, everyone has, in um, some point in time in their life, come to that uh sort of fork in the road where you got to make a decision, okay, is this what I really want to do or am I happy sort of bumping along? And I think for Dustin, that's really what happened to him. He got to a point in his life where he said, you know what, I don't want to just be an average player, I want to be the best player I can become. And from my point of view and Janet's point of view, we just gave him sort of that support and that belief that every athlete needs. I don't care which athlete you are, even the greatest athletes in the world have to have that confidence. And if you don't have that confidence, um, then it doesn't matter how talented you are. And I think he really came to that realization on his own. And from from what I saw and from what I know of him and being around him, and obviously I was around him a lot, I think really his life changed uh, more so than being around Janet and I and Paulina. Um, When he was disappointed, he didn't make the President's Cup team, I believe in uh, uh, 2013 when he was ninth player and he didn't get picked. It wasn't a captain's pick. And I think that really uh, shook him up to a point where as Janet had said to him one night, you know, don't put your fate in anybody else's hands. Control your own destiny. And I think that's when he really made the decision as a professional athlete, um, I'm gonna control my own destiny from now on. And from that point on, he just became a different probably person and a more complete golfer than he is today, uh, that he is today. Um, And he's a special athlete more importantly we love him to death he's just a wonderful young man
0: which has to make the success he's now having all oh, the sweeter- it's so much fun
1: because we personally saw the effort and the work and the commitment that he's put into it um... and the time uh... just there's a lot of great athletes in the world and you know my dad always said uh, no matter how good you think you are there's somebody out there that's better than you are so you better be ready the best you can possibly be, or you're gonna be on the receiving end of that loss. And I think for Dustin, um, everyone knew how good he was, and I think that the last person maybe to understand or realize to what level he could get to is maybe himself. And
0: Why, why do you think that was?
1: Um, some people just takes longer to learn. Every athlete's different. Some athletes learn it at 20, some athletes learn it at 25, some athletes learn it at 30. Um, and I just think for his, for, from his point of view, um, he just finally said, OK, I'm not going to be content winning once a year. I want to go out there and win a lot. And I, th- I think he's put in so much work now, not just from golf, but physically getting ready to play golf. He's in better shape than he's ever been in. And as I told him in, in Pittsburgh this year, when he's played so well and won, won the US Open, Physically, that's about as good a shape as I've ever seen him in. He's always been known to be in great shape as an athlete And I think he's even gone to another level now.
0: What do you think the difference is? Uh, speaking to dominance and then your dominance when you were playing. What do you think the difference is between great and the best?
1: Oh, it's a fine line, but I think the and I said this very uh, I say this a lot the greatest athletes who ever played in any sport that they're in um, save their best for the most crucial and most precious scenario um, and i always relate to when i was a younger uh, kid and uh, a guy that was a fan of every sport and watched other athletes and i always said this that if it was game seven of a baseball game you could not get george brett out george brett was the greatest clutch hitter I ever saw as a baseball player If it was Game 7 of uh, NBA Finals, you wanted to see Larry Bird and Magic Johnson play because they both could dominate. Uh, I thought that John McEnroe, the bigger the game, the bigger the tennis match, uh, the, the different level that he would go to. And more importantly, those players loved it. You could see by the look in their eyes and in their faces, it wasn't work to them. That's when they were having their most fun, and that's when they were having their most enjoyment was the bigger the game and the bigger the situation uh the the next level that they would rise to and for me that's what I've always admired and that's why I've always said that guy's a good player but that guy's a great player
0: and you hold obviously so many a- NHL records and I think probably what's most impressive isn't the the number of records but the gap between you mm-hmm. and the uh p- person who's second maybe the uh most amazing stats that if you took away all of your NHL goals you would still be the leader in points in the NHL but I was interested to read you a, a quote that somebody said and get your thoughts and it's that um, quote I always say he's the greatest player ever because he wasn't strong as a matter of fact he was kind of weak he wasn't fast he was just an average skater his shot wasn't that great he wasn't quick there was no one thing you could point at and say, that's what makes him great, but he could put it all together like nobody else could. What do you think?
1: Who said that? Um, uh, <laughs> hockey. <commentator>. My dad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, listen, it goes back to what I said from the very beginning. When I was six, I never changed my style of play. And I was fortunate enough that I worked on my craft from the time I was five years old to the time I retired at 39. And I knew what I had. I, I wasn't fast, and I wasn't uh, strong, and I didn't have the hardest shot. But he's right, I, I did put it together in a sense that uh, if there was a loose puck, I could get to a loose puck. Um, my uh, uh, ability uh, to have tremendous balance on my skates, uh You know, I was hard to knock off the puck because I had great balance. Um, Shooting the puck, I didn't necessarily have the hardest shot, but I could tell you I could hit the exact spot that I wanted to shoot the puck to. So for me, those things all made me the player that I was. And then the preparation for a game. um, And I said this recently. uh, We were really well coached in Edmonton, and yet I think that one of the big pluses for the Oilers and for the organization was that guys like myself and Mark Messi and Glenn Anderson and Yuri Curry and Paul Coffey, all guys who became Hall of Famers, we were like sponges. We wanted to be directed and we wanted to be coached and we wanted to be told and we listened to it and we took that direction as this is going to make us a better team and better players. And so all that cultivated into what we became and I, I like to think that uh, we were all a big part of that. Uh, um, And the the era I played in, let's let's face it, Uh, I came in at the right time. Timing in life is a big part of it, too. Uh, There was 21-team league when I came in. Probably would have been very difficult for me to make a six-team league. Uh, I got one year sort of a stepping stone where I played in that WHA that wasn't as good as the NHL, but it was better than the American League level, so that helped me. The players that they put around us, Hall of Famers, like Messi, Anderson, Coffey, Curry, um, and the style of play. Glenn Sather idolized and worshiped the Winnipeg Jets of the WHA days between 75 and 78 with Bobby Hall and uh, Kent Nielsen and uh, Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nielsen. He thought that was the way hockey should be played. And so he coached us that way. The game is different today, these players are bigger, they're faster, they're stronger, the goaltending's different. Uh, who knows if I could even have played in this era, but I was, my timing was perfect for when I played.
0: I mean, the extent of luck, though, it, as it relates to you, is just your hard work putting you in the right place at well, the right yeah. time, because if you played in this era, you'd end up being bigger Well, it's a different game, game. So, yeah. Right. It's,
1: it's a different game in this era, um, but I'd like to think that somehow I would've found a way. Right.
0: Um, I think you learned that early on um, excellence has a price. Yeah. Um And I want to kind of touch on a lighter moment first before uh, getting into what went on. Um, tell about the uh, trading jackets with the teammate and why there are people probably somewhere out there mm-hmm. that think you can't spell your name right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Well, you know, back in the 70s, probably even in the 80s, the world was a bigger place. You know, we, we didn't have uh, a lot of TV cameras and a lot of pictures and all that goes with that. Uh, you know, I was kidding with my kids the other day because you, you know, they, we were driving to an event and they can pull it up on their phone and it tells you how to drive right to that event. Whereas we go to hockey tournaments and we'd, say we'd stop at gas stations and 7-Elevens, you know where this arena is or you know where this ballpark is. That's how we found our way around. Yeah. And so you hear these myths about other kids. Oh, watch out for this kid. He's this. And this kid is going to be sensational. He's this. And because <clears throat> although it's a, it was a bigger province, Ontario, a lot of the best teams ended up in sort of the same tournaments, whether it was tournament an hour away or two hours away or three hours away so it was always the same eight or nine ten really good teams from Ontario that sort of squared off in these events and ultimately we usually got to the semifinals or finals we had a really good team we had five kids on my ten-year-old team that actually spent time in the National Hockey League which is pretty remarkable for a town of only 50,000 people but <clears throat> our goaltender Greg Stefan who played in the NHL uh, we looked a lot alike we will have blonde hair and in those days, it was a big thing. You had your number on your jacket. And so we traded jackets going into the arena. I said, you go into the arena first. And I said, you go get bugged, and I'm just going to walk in. So we switched jackets. He said, I'm never going to do that again. Because nobody had really ever seen me, but they all assumed that I was him because he had my jacket and I was number nine on it. Right. right. <laughs> so it was kind of funny.
0: And so he was handed your know, Yeah, he autographs. said, we're never doing that again. <laughs> um, so explain why it got to a point early on, 12 Thirteen, 14, 13 yeah. years old, where you yeah. just didn't like being Wayne Gretzky. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't think it was a question. I didn't like being Wayne Gretzky. I didn't like being everything that went on about around being Wayne Gretzky. In that sense, that the kids were great. You know, we had listen when you're a little town, it's all the same kids on the ball team. It's mostly all the same kids on the hockey team, and a lot of the same kids on the box lacrosse team. So there was a good ten or eleven of the fifteen on each team that just. Played together on every team, so the kids and I we really got along well. Um, we had no issues, and actually, the year I scored 400 goals is really ironic because uh, <clears throat> the uh, coach who at the time was my uncle, my, de- my my mom's brother. He came in one day and he said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on defense. You're gonna play defense." And I remember I was almost in tears and talking to my mom and dad at the dinner table with my uncle, and I don't want to play defense and My uncle said, but listen to why I'm going to play you in defense. And I said, okay. Um, We had three lines of forwards, nine kids, and we had two sets of defense. And he said, you know, I can play you every second shift, and nobody's going to be upset. Parents aren't going to complain. Kids aren't going to be upset. And I said, I started thinking about it. I said, wow, this is, yeah, a great idea. I, I like this. And so I played defense that year because I could play every second shift. And what happened was the very first exhibition game, we had one of the four defensemen, and I'll never forget. Uh, the first period, he broke his leg, sliding into the boards accidentally, broke his legs and basic, leg and basically missed almost the entire year, six, seven months. Um, so everybody said at that time, who are you going to add to the team for your other defenseman and my uncle said, we're not going to add anybody. So I basically could play the whole game uh, without taking anybody's ice time. So it worked out really well. And so the kids and I were fine, like I said, and as time went on, parents you know would get envious and you know some of the coaches I had at 13, 14 were um, didn't like maybe the style, of the play that I played, and,
0: and and although it might have only been a few people, yeah. what, the, those well, just, few people, what were they saying?
1: like anything else. The negative people always the loudest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that I was overrated and I was spoiled and I'm not going to make it past 15. And so I just I remember out of the blue I got this phone call from a friend that I'd known forever, and he said, "How would you like to play in Toronto?" And I said, "Absolutely, I'm in." So. <laughs> I said to my dad, after he called me, I said, hey, I'm gonna go play in Toronto, and my dad kind of laughed. Um, But as time went on that summer, he came down a couple times and explained to my dad what would be good for me, and as time went on, my dad started really thinking, okay, this might be the right thing to do, let him kind of go be a normal high school student and normal kid and playing. And my dad really felt that I would struggle, not struggle, but be more of an average player playing in Toronto where there's so many good players and so many good teams. Um, I think he felt like it would obviously, you know, progress me and make me a better player, but that be, um, I'd be more like one of the players instead of this sort of uh, spotlight kid. And I think ultimately he just said, you know, okay, um, this is probably the right thing to do. And ironically enough, um, when I went to Toronto the first day, Uh, to meet and and see the people I was going to live with. I had never met before. Um, And obviously I ended up spending two years with them. They had one son who was two years older than me who I periodically still see. Um, But they became like second parents for me because they became legal guardians and almost like an adoption. Um, And so obviously they became very close and became like second parents to me.
0: And this was an hour away from home. It was an hour Um, away from home
1: and... um, um, it was tough. You know, the first three months or four months was really difficult. I wouldn't wish it on anybody.
0: Well, you were, I think, crying a lot, yeah. and how hard was it not only on you, but your parents to make the yeah. decision to let you go? Oh,
1: I, now I look back at it, and I understand how difficult it was for them. Uh, it was probably harder for them than it was even for me, um, because then I obviously went through it with my own kids. You have your kids, and you want them home all the time. So, no, I I understood it was probably harder for them. It was probably even more difficult for my mom than even my dad. Um, but turned out to be probably the best thing I ever did in my life and probably the most important thing I ever did because I became much more of a normal child and blended in. People I went to high school the first year I was there didn't even know I played ice hockey. Um,
0: Except there, I think there was a moment, and this might have been later on, but I thought this was interesting. You score four goals in a game. And one of your Toronto friends, friends just yeah. unknowingly goes to the game yeah. and comes up to you the next day, asking if that's you. And what do you yeah. say?
1: <laughs> well, it was ironic because to this day I'm still friends with him, and he was he he was my closest friend in in high school, and I didn't know a lot of kids there because I just moved to Toronto, it was a big city and big school. I think we had 900 kids in our school, um, and we became friends. But he never played hockey, and he was a football player, and I never played football, obviously, and. I didn't know much about it, and he didn't know much about hockey. But one of his uh, brother's friends was playing junior A hockey, so he we went to see the game. It was a playoff game, and uh, I actually played in the game. I think I scored three goals that night. And he asked me the next day at school. He said, "Was that you?" And I said, "Yeah, but don't tell anybody." <laughs> but the secret kind of got out of the bag of a couple months later. Um, but
0: you were kind of being serious. You just didn't that. want that. Because I was because really of what enjoying.
1: I really enjoyed myself in high school. It was just. A normal 14 year old that was going to high school. I had created some friends there and good friendships and I was having fun at school and I was enjoying the people I was around and uh, people really didn't look at me as this person who was in newspapers every day and in media every day. And what, what really happened was when I went in September, they told me I couldn't play and we went to court. Uh, so there was a lot of media that when I was in court trying to fight this that I could do it because kids in the past had done it. Um, they were taking a stand that they weren't going to allow this anymore. Um, and so, you know, we lost and then I said, well, what's plan B? And they said, well, we can take it to another level and I said, no. I don't, I'm not enjoying going to court. This is kind of silly to me. I don't. I don't want to do this. And so I had three choices, and one was to uh, go home. Um, two um, was to play high school hockey, and at the time, high school hockey wasn't great in Canada. It was just okay. I felt like that'd be a real step backwards for me. Um, and three, um, play junior hockey. Obviously, I chose the junior hockey route, but as this all transpired in sort of September, October, November uh, the school that I was supposed to go to the teachers were on strike so really nobody knew I was in Toronto at the time and nobody knew I was actually living in this area so when I started back up in school it was early January um, that's when uh, the media had kinda died down and people really didn't put it together so I was able to kinda slip into the school and become a normal student for an entire year so it was funny because I was such a big passer and believer in in, uh, uh, the game of hockey passing the puck and all that (coughs) excuse me and I was playing uh, high school basketball and the coach used to get mad at me because I'd throw up the basket every every time I got the ball I threw the ball I never pass it and finally one time he said to me why don't you play basketball like you play hockey I said I didn't even know you knew I played hockey (laughs) Um, so anyway I ended up after that first year obviously people started to be aware of who i was i want to jump around some of the remaining
0: moments mm-hmm. uh, i have with you uh, first uh, retirement um at what point in your career did you realize you had peaked and how did you handle knowing mm-hmm. your performance was starting to decline um
1: I, I don't think as an athlete you ever think you've peaked i think you always believe that you're better at that age than you were It's kind of a funny thing about professional uh, athletes. Um, I really believe at 39 when I retired that mentally I was a better player, physically I was a better player. Uh, With the knowledge that I had, I was a better player. Uh, Physical testing we would do uh, before training camp or halfway through the year, my grades and my marks were better than they were when I was 21 but you don't have the same mindset at 39 that you do at 21. And so, as I say to people, you know, when I was 21 years old uh, at physical fitness testing, I did nine sit-ups and 10 push-ups and scored 92 goals. Then I was 38 years old in training camp, and I did the same testing. I did 125 push-ups and 150 sit-ups and scored nine goals. So <laughs> how does that relate to anything, right? So. You know, I think you become a smarter athlete as you get older, but your, your sense of urgency uh, is probably, as a professional hockey player, different for everybody. But from my point of view, I think from between the age of 34 and 33 was when I became the best player that I was in my career. Why did you decide to retire when you did? It was pretty simple. Um, for me, it wasn't a hard decision, um, to be quite honest, uh, in the sense that the game itself... And playing for the Rangers and the organization, living in Manhattan, I loved every second of it. Mark Messe once said that there's not one thing about the game of hockey I don't love. And I was the same way, whether it was a hard practice after a bad loss, uh, team meeting with the coaches, uh, being together with the guys, riding on the team bus, traveling together, um, getting ready for a big game, um, playing in those big games, everything about the game I loved. But from my point of view, I knew I was done because the older you get as a professional athlete, the more time that you have to put in on, in the off season. Your commitment has to be nothing but short of excellent. And so I was fortunate enough that at about the age of 29, 30, I ran into a kid named uh, Billy Blanks, who was a real big fitness guy in California and a real big believer in kickboxing and Taibo sure. and training. And so he kind of took me under his wing in the off season. I used to train every morning from about 6.30 to 9.30. Uh, each and every day, whether it was on a rowing machine, whether it was Tai whether it was weightlifting, we would do something um, pretty much on average of six days a week. And the year that I retired, I just said, you know, I mentally don't have the capacity to put that, work eth- that time in and that work ethic that I need to get ready for the next season. If I could just come back to the next season, start training camp, I would play. But I knew that physically and mentally I didn't have the uh, strength uh, and the willpower to want to put that time in that I needed to put in to be successful as a professional athlete.
0: And I think it was the day before your final game, mm-hmm. uh, the Rangers owner offers yep. you a check for a million dollars just to consider to that, probably, playing another yeah. year. You could have kept the million dollars if you d- considered yeah. it
1: and said... Probably the dumbest thing I've ever done, right? <laughs> <laughs> Without question. I, I mean, it, um, it, it, You know, I always tell people this there's nothing like playing in Manhattan. It really is special and the Ranger organization is one of the greatest organizations all the pro sports and the Dolan family were nothing but just incredible not only to me but my family and my wife and uh, the day before I was announcing my retirement Mr. Dolan said just give it seven days and you still want to retire in seven days you can keep the money and I said to him I said you know in good conscience I, I just can't take your money because I know I'm done uh, but that's how classy their organization was they were just I, I can't say enough good things about him personally and about that organization
0: at any point since you've retired has the thought of coming back crossed Never. your mind ever
1: geez I, I think one time about two or three years after i was retired i was training at this uh, fitness institute in, in phoenix and uh, they, i was training pretty hard it was like three hours a day and i was doing it with a couple of the young coyote players and i was really having fun And I remember it was about four weeks into it. After, after, I do remember, after the second day, I was so sore, I had to get a massage for two hours because my body was so sore from not having done it for like two or three years. Um, And I started getting phone calls from some Canadian media friends like, hey, what are you doing? And I said, trust me, I am not coming back. That's not part of the plan. I'm just doing this for fun. I'm doing it to get in shape. I'm really enjoying myself. I'm 42 years old. That, that's that's not the recipe for a comeback in this day and age. So I never, never crossed my mind to come back. Uh, although I will tell you, people say to me, do you miss it? And I say, absolutely, I wish I could still play. Um, I wish I could be out there. Unfortunately, uh, as a professional athlete, at the age of 40, you're an old man, but in the real world, you're a youngster. Um, so, do I miss it? Immensely. And do I wish I could still play? Yeah, but I know I'm not good enough to play. And so, for me, periodically, whether it's once or twice a year, I'll play and I'll play in the odd um, outdoor old timer game and things like that. I'm not a big believer in old timers hockey. Um, I, I'm not a big backer of that. But every now and then, when they play the outdoor games, and I think it's good for the communities. I did one in Edmonton. I'm going to do one in Winnipeg. Uh, there's one in St. Louis. I, I just think they're good for the communities themselves, and they raise a lot of awareness for the sport, um, and they raise a lot of money for charity. But to play just every day in old-timer games, that's not, that's not for me.
0: When you retired from hockey as player and even later as an owner and coach, you were still, by all standards, a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you replace the satisfaction?
1: Oh, you don't. Now that you got from no, the No, you don't. Uh, I tell people this all the time. There's no way to replace the high and the excitement and enthusiasm I had as a professional hockey player. That's without question not replaceable. So you, you can't even try to, and if you try to, you're in trouble. Um, the the thing that the closest thing you can get to is you, like my mom and dad, you live your life through your kids. You know, whatever your kids are doing, you pull for them and you support them and you pray for them and you want them to succeed and that's your high and that's your excitement and that's your enthusiasm. Um, and we're lucky as a family that it's gone to another level and that we get to watch, arguably one of the greatest athletes and one of the greatest golfers in the world, and he's part of our family. So. That's kind of how you look for your vice, but nothing replaces the thrill of playing hockey.
0: What's an average day entail for you today?
1: Come and do interviews with you. <laughs> um, the highlight, obviously. The highlight. This is the highlight. I'm actually, and I never do a lot of this stuff, but I'm actually going to go, uh, I guess you would say videotape because they don't film, uh, an episode of The Simpsons this afternoon, which will oh, be are fun. You? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So I keep busy, you know, and like next week I'll be going to the World Cup and I have a restaurant in Toronto and, you know, I work for a couple of companies that I'll do a couple of events for and go see some hockey games. But I keep relatively busy and I don't go to a lot of hockey games. When I do go to games, usually uh, it's when I'm at home in St. Louis, I, I like to go down the arena there because it's convenient for me and they treat me really nicely there. The ownership is great to me and treat care of my family and friends. And if I'm in Toronto every now and then or I go to Edmonton for a game. but. I go to only three or four hockey games a year. I don't go to a lot of games, and I enjoy watching them, but I just don't have a lot of uh, time to go to games now, but I watch a lot on on TV. I love watching the games. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for the athletes of today, and I think they've uh, done a great job of not only playing our game, but helping sell our sport and taking it to another level, so I have a lot of respect for all of them.
0: What was involved with writing the book 99?
1: So. You know, for me, the people who know me, um, there's nothing in life I love more than the game of hockey. I mean, I know everything about the game. Uh, I grew up studying it, I idolized it. I used to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame and walk around for hours and hours just staring at equipment and players and names and stories. And so I just felt like, you know what, this is the 99th anniversary of the National Hockey League. Let's do something real fun talk about the NHL, and so it's basically broken down in different elements, um, sort of the early years of the National Hockey League and sort of how it started and how we went from two periods to three periods, Uh, how the All-Star game sort of started and came about. And then to me as sort of a youngster, um, growing up and going to my first NHL game, um, watching the games on TV, collecting hockey cards, idolizing players like Gordie Howe and Bobby Hall, Bobby Orr. Um, And then, fortunately, being lucky enough to play in the NHL and talking about Canada Cups and winning Stanley Cups and then, of course, being in L.A. um, and then New York and St. Louis. And then sort of me as a fan now, watching the games and being part of the Olympics in 2002 and winning a gold medal and things like that. So it's just sort of a history of the game itself uh, from sort of different directions of not knowing, the, obviously, the beginning part, because it wasn't alive, but then as a kid and then as a player and then post being a player. So really how great our game is and how nice the people are in the game and just fun history of the National Hockey League itself.
0: All right, three remaining questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written other books before. Um, what's the process of writing mm-hmm. a book Long. like for you? Long. Long,
1: and then the process itself when it's done, that's the beginning because then you gotta go out and people wanna talk about it and hear about it, and that's a good thing. Um, But it's a long process. It was almost two years of sitting down and coming up with ideas and thoughts and stories. And obviously I'm not a a full-fledged writer, but it's my words and my thoughts and my ideas and sort of put them together and collaborate and get them on paper and sort of try to make it flow from beginning to end of what I had sort of envisioned in my mind of what I wanted kids I wanted wanted kids to kind of pick up the book and say, wow, that's pretty cool about the NHL, or, wow, one day I hope I can play in the NHL. So that was kind of the process.
0: We have a couple moments Mm -hmm. in the show, so these are bit random questions. Uh, The first one being, um, growing up, what Mm -hmm. would you say were your first 15 minutes of fame?
1: Oh, probably I did this show, gosh... Uh, in Canada, it was called Sports Beat 72. I think the guy's name was uh, Fergie Oliver and Pat Marsden. You can look that one up. That's pretty good. Well, there you go. That. And it used to be like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon uh, hour-long sports feature. Um, kind of like a little bit, sort of like Wild World of Sports in the U.S., but it was more sort of uh, documentaries on different sort of athletes across the country, whether it was NHL players or whether it was track and field stars. And so these two guys, the year I scored 400 goals, they really did sort of the the first national uh, story on me where people across the country were gonna first hear and see and know about Wayne Gretzky. So that was probably it, probably, I would say, February, March of 1972.
0: You've played with a lot of great players. Is there one player that when you teamed up with, you two just made the right combination? Mm -hmm.
1: I say this all the time, Um, well first let me say this, that in 1961 I was born in southern Ontario, and in 1960, uh, Yeri Curry was born in uh, Helsinki, Finland. We came together at 19 years old, and he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Finnish, Uh, But when we got on the ice, we spoke the exact same language for whatever reason We were destined to be with each other. We played the exact same style played the same game And we had the same common hockey sense on the ice. So together um, I wouldn't have been the player without him uh, That I became because we gelled so perfectly together Um, At the age of 14 and when I moved to Toronto I was supposed to play with a kid named Paul Coffey He was on that team and Paul Coffey and I had become friends since I was 14 years old um, We were teammates in, in youth hockey uh, We were best friends when we were younger which people a lot of people don't realize and I always tell people that You know Bobby Orr is the greatest defenseman I ever played, but to me Paul Coffey was the second best defenseman I ever played and without him my career uh, Wouldn't have uh, been as uh, flamboyant as it was because he was so good at you know getting me the puck But the most important guy I ever played with, and I say this all the time to people, the greatest player I ever played against in my career was Mario Lemieux, and the greatest player I ever played with was Marc Messier. So I was very fortunate in my lifetime, my timing of who I got to play with, who I was around. I said recently to somebody, how could I not become a better hockey player when I practiced every single day against Marc Messier? And every drill, every drill we did, Glenn Sather and I put each other together, and Listen, periodically we had some days where we were tired physically and mentally, and practice wasn't as great as probably could have been. But all in all, both Mark and I practiced extremely hard, and i th- like to think we made each other that much of a better player. Really a well, pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit grahambensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.